All right, welcome to the first of its kind, world-changing manufacturers network. Lisa Ryan has her ears to the ground and her heart in the game. Get ongoing education and new connections right here with Lisa and the manufacturers network. Buckle your seat, listen, and spread the word. Here's Lisa. Hey, it's Lisa Ryan, and welcome to the Manufacturers Network podcast. I'm excited to introduce our guest today, Andrew Crow. Andrew is the leader of the new American manufacturing renaissance and host of TV's Project MFG. Andrew, welcome to the show. Lisa, thank you so much for having me. So share with us a little bit about your background and what led to this passion that you have about changing the, the, the face of manufacturing. I would love to. So uh, my name is Andrew Crow, and I grew up in inner city St. Louis. The area that I grew up in was pretty violent and there wasn't a lot of opportunities in the school district or within, you know, a radius of where I was. So I didn't have a lot of opportunities or platforms to see what I was good at outside of, you know, like sports and entertainment. And, you know, seeing a lot of people around me with jobs that weren't really paying enough to survive on, it led me into thriving to want to do something to lift my family out of poverty, for lack of better words. And unfortunately, the only examples that I had around me of people that weren't doing that bad were people that were doing illegal things. Before I was 18, I was a two-time felon and a teenage father. And I didn't have a lot of focus and I didn't really know what I was going to do with my life. And I didn't have a lot of opportunity to express what I could be. Fast forward to jobs not working out because of felonies and getting into more trouble in the streets. I finally had enough and I put the word out that I was looking for a job. And a young lady introduced me to a place that she was working at that was a manufacturing plant. And I walked in and I took a machinist test and I failed horribly, having never seen micrometers or calipers or anything like that. But on the backside, there was a math test that had fractions and decimals, obviously what we measure in here in manufacturing. And, you know, I did really well uh, on that side. So I got hired to run uh, the, the saw on third shift to cut material and drop it off at the CNC machines and the manual machines. And I took this job and I walked into that factory for the first time and my mind just exploded with all of the opportunities. I felt like I was, you know, the guy that got left in the museum or the kid in the candy shop, you know, walked into this whole new world. And I had never considered how things were made. I didn't know anything about manufacturing. And it just for the first time lit a fire under me that I had never felt before. Other things that I had done in life. I wasn't really passionate about. I didn't know what that felt like to have a passion. And I stayed in that that environment as long as I could. I would work my eight hours, clock out, and then I would stay for four hours and I would watch the machinists and I would stand and just take notes. I bought a lot of coffee and donuts and I tried to find some teachers and some mentors that would teach me more about this field. And at the same time, this thing was keeping me away from the streets and making bad decisions. Because all I could think about was how important my job was. We were making things that went into the fighter jets and the tanks and the cars and things like that, that, that moves America and protects America. And for the first time, I didn't feel like a felon and I didn't feel like a teenage father. I felt like I was an American and I felt like the things that I was doing 
contributed to America and I was important here. So I would come to work early. And like I said, I would stay late and I would study. And at the same time, I understood that the culture wasn't really conducive to, you know, people that look like me and frankly, not people that look like you either. So as I'm falling in love with this industry, I'm catching a realization that this place isn't really a great place for people of color and women. Because I was raised by women and I am a person of color, I felt like there were some things that we could do to change that. And I watched how manufacturing uplifted my life and brought me from feeling like I didn't have a place in America and I wasn't important. And I wanted to make sure that people that came from where I'm from could have that same feeling. At the same time, my, my career just started rising because I, I put as much as I could into it. So I went from the saw to uh, running the manuals and then from the manuals to running some CNC machines. And at that time, I just started like just really diving in. And I looked on YouTube. There weren't, there was no Titan at the time. There was nobody that was teaching that looked like me or represented my community. So I kind of made that my mission to go back into the community and teach them those skills as much as I could. Uh, so I would work with the youth organization, the youth offenders organizations, working with, you know, the boys and girls club and working with uh, my sister works at a, a place called the Wyman group where she runs programs for teenage mothers and single mothers and battered women. And I would teach these skills so people could get these jobs that are paying high, that can work around their schedules and keep pushing the, the industry forward. At the same time, my name started rising in the industry because I was able to, you know, become a conduit between the open jobs that we have and the jobless that are in these communities. And I would go into some major brands and give them, you know, the skill set and the tool set to be able to start communicating with these pockets of society that have been overlooked by our industry and start building that bridge and building that connection because the workforce, the face of the workforce and the workers are changing. And the way that our industry has been recruiting workers isn't going to work going forward if we want it to continue to thrive. A gentleman had said something on one of my LinkedIn posts. And he said, manufacturing is a global heavyweight division. And, you know, if that's what it is, we need everybody on our American spectrum, everybody that's in that boiling pot. We need the opinions and the creativity and the minds of all of us to be able to have a manufacturing sector that's going to compete globally. And this is the way that we do it. So, right. um, you know, noticing that we had a major void in hiring and recruiting and retaining the next generation of American manufacturers and leaders, I decided to get out on the road. And I started with friends of mine. Mastercam definitely has been a great partner. Edge Factor, Factory Fix. And they are helping me get on the road and put American manufacturing on the forefront, getting in front of communities and showing them, giving them awareness and access to these careers, training for these careers, and showing them local opportunities around them that they can get in front of right now to change their lives and become, you know, whatever they want to be in manufacturing, whether that's the saw guy, the CNC operator, the machinist, the programmer, the engineer, this is the new American dream and is definitely accessible. I also right. go to companies and teach them, you know, how to recruit and retrain. And, and when I'm done, use the programs that are there 
to be able to find and educate the people on their own. And it's a beautiful thing. So, yeah. Uh, well, let me, let me stop you because there's, there's so much energy and passion and everything that you have coming through that I know that people that are listening to the show going, man, if I had a hundred of him. So there's a couple things that immediately come to mind with almost 3 million manufacturing jobs going unfilled by the year 2030, we have to start looking at non-traditional sources. And being a, a felon, you know, you look at, sometimes we look at that population and we say, well, we're afraid or we don't think they're gonna work, where you really turn that on its head because somebody gave you a chance and now you're coming in with a whole new world that you had never been exposed to before. And, you know, with jobs that pay great, that you are contributing to a bigger mission, because like you said, you're not just making pieces parts. I mean, you're contributing to aircraft carriers and all of these other things. So you can feel a part of something. And it, it seems in manufacturing, because we have this, like you said, it, it's not a a place where you see a lot of people in color and women. And so, you know, that need to diversify. So what are some of the things you're doing? First of all, uh, it, you know, we know that we need bodies to fill these jobs, but why else should manufacturing look at more ways of bringing in diversity and changing the face of their workforce? Looking at underserved populations and non-traditional populations, especially felons, you get a 85% recidivism rate drop when you in introduce felons to manufacturing careers because people that get paid high amounts, well, not high amounts, but good enough amounts to be able to survive, they are less likely to supplement those incomes with street and illegal activities. So number one, our re-entry population, I like to call it, needs society's validations to say, you're more than your mistake that you made. Now let's help you re-enter society in a way that you can pay your restitution, you can pay your parole officer or whatever that may be, and you can still have lights and food and you know take care of your kids. And that's really all people really want. At the same time, in a manufacturing environment, you're looking at numbers and you're looking past some of those things that they may have done in the past. And if people can, can work hard for you, there's an avenue to go to school and, and get different labels on you besides felon. There's a real opportunity. Another thing that I'll say is a lot of the companies that I talked to in the beginning, they think that they have to make a big investment or they think that they have to you know drastically change some of the things that they're doing. And it really doesn't have to work like that because there are things that are happening around you and in your community that are gonna calm some of those fears that you have especially felon based. So there's things like bonding insurance that you can get or that a felon that's trying to re-enter can get. And that will insure him from anything that you think will happen while they're on the job and insure you as well, right? At the same time, there's a lot of programs that do the background checks, that work on the soft skills, that, you know, the Urban League has a lot of beautiful ones that, that will help work on all the auxiliary things, provide transportation to these jobs so that all you have to work on is the hard skills and you know train them on the job, right? Another thing, why do we have to diversify? 
We've got to diversify because we've only traditionally given a seat at the table and mouths to speak in consideration of opinion of one type of person. And that's been older white male, right? And our industry is full of it. And that's great. And there's nowhere that they need to go. But our table is big now because this is a global competition. So now our table is even bigger and there's more seats that need to be here, but they're going unfilled because we're only replacing the seats that are there. So we need to look at these this table as, hey, let's introduce more cuisine, whether you like it or not, whether it's something that you're used to eating, it's still an option and it's still there. Let's introduce more people at the table who have an opportunity to speak and put in their opinion. And at the same time, you don't have to go anywhere. We're not pushing you out. We're just adding seats to this bigger table that we've created, right? And the more that we can say, hey, I like a little bit of this type of food, that type of food, that type of food, that type of food, it all works in harmony. And this is the balance that we found. These things go together the best. Then we're humming and we're able to put ourselves in a place where we're the top global manufacturer again. And we're going against on a global scale, you know, countries that don't traditionally cut out parts of their population. We're not even giving ourselves a good chance to say we've got all of this traditional old manufacturing knowledge, plus we've got all of this new knowledge and angles and opinion and experiences that we can add to that that'll make us even stronger. Yeah. Now, when it comes to, you know, it's it all sounds like a great idea, but what would be instead of just looking at it from the standpoint of, OK, we need some more people of color, we need some more women in the organization. What can manufacturers do to really start building their diversity and their diversity programs in the right way and in the way for the long term where you have that not only diversity, but you also have belonging and inclusion? 100%. So that is a great question. And I think that going along with looking at other industries, because almost every other industry, I feel like has adopted things like this and programs like this, like 10 to 20 years ago. So we've got actually uh, an advantage in that, uh, in that event where we can look at industries like the IT industry, for example, that started off and it was stereotypically for, you know, nerds, you know, and right. whatever that definition was. Right. And and then and then there was an explosion of computing and everything. The Internet, you know, made everything, you know, more digital and we're digitizing. And now there's more jobs than the stereotypical nerd to be able to fill. Right. So right. we start looking at things like coding boot camps and coding boot camps are now. You, if you're a peg leg unicorn that identifies as a pirate, there's a coding camp for you. You know what I'm saying? They've taken the industry and rebranded it to something that is easy to get into no matter who you are. And you can upskill quickly. You can learn from and with people that look like you and, and, and you have that comfortability. Plus, you matter here. You belong here. You know what I'm saying? So if we can adapt some of those things, you know, G-coding camps, pockets of communities and empowering those communities to be able to have the, the resources to be able to teach these camps, we can definitely change what it looks like and change the culture of manufacturing as well. At the same time, the industry is in a weird place where 
most of the knowledge are with the people that are enforcing the toxic culture. And if you're a manufacturer, you have to make the hard decision to say, this guy's got a whole lot of knowledge and is making us a lot of money in a lot of parts. And he's got a lot of power around here because he's been here for a long time, but he's not a good culture fit for what we need going forward. Do I get rid of him and change the culture now and lose all of that knowledge and machining? Or do I take the stand and change the culture and do the right thing? And that's that it's tough. It's tough to make that decision for a lot of companies, especially when they don't see the replaceable talent already clearly on the horizon, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, and part of that is having those kind of mentor-mentee relationships where you're putting that older tenured worker together with that new person coming in and giving them the opportunities. Because we're not only seeing a lot of mentoring, but we're seeing a lot of reverse mentoring because those new employees and those diverse employees, they see the world differently because of exposure to tech, exposure to life, exposure to what they've had. So again, if, if companies are open to it and can start to, you know, one conversation at a time, start to change that, it works. So in all the the companies that you've been working with, what are some um, success stories or things that you've seen of of industry that is supporting those types of workforce development programs? What are you seeing? So I'm seeing a lot of success with companies that tie in with official apprenticeship programs or their local tech schools via shared technology, some of those machines that are sitting empty that have work available, they're using those and maybe donating those to community organizations that have the time to train people from the community up and still run parts on those machines and then give them workers that are already trained up and exactly what they need to be trained. I'm looking at, like you said, uh, people that have apprenticeship programs where they're sitting, the young with the seasoned, right? And they're allowing those conversations to take place. And not only that, they're they're incentivizing those things so that other people within the company see that there is value from those relationships and they're making that the culture. I also see national brands like Mastercam that are hopping out here and taking a stand and trying to make their softwares and things more accessible and more affordable to programs that couldn't traditionally afford them, but are around the pockets of the population that need them, laying those seeds and then tying them back to the companies that use a master cam, they can start to build those bridges and build those bonds. There's other companies that are thinking outside the box and it's really, really working. So there's a city that I work with that we help initiate a live work program where the local manufacturers, there's like five local manufacturers that are on board, as well as the local economic development council. And if you work at one of these manufacturing plants and you satisfy, you know, a certain amount of, of KPIs, they will match your down payment and your closing costs on a home. And the economic wow. development board will match the other half. So that way you've got, you know, a taxpaying worker that's committed to not only that job, but that city for at least the next 15 to 30 years. And you're helping break generational curses through helping people get real estate and own homes quicker through working, right? So those types of situations, those types of 
relationships and working collaboration with industry and government, tying it into community are the things that are really working in the cities that I've been to and I've been, you know, consulting with for sure. Well, and it's really a win-win because not only are you helping individuals to get off the street, to get a good job with good benefits, and like you just said, the potential for home ownership that makes them more stable and committed to the organization, you know, it's a win for the company because they are getting, again, loyal workers that are coming in there that they're showing, and they can feel good that they're making a difference. And I believe, isn't there some kind of tax credits too? 100%. participate in those felon programs? Absolutely. Absolutely. So hiring felons and hiring disadvantaged people, they're 100% are tax credits that the government will give you that you can, again, put back into a recruiting and retaining program to make it stronger, an apprenticeship program, all of these different things. So it's not only going to benefit you in karmic way or benefit the industry because we're bringing more people in, but there's a financial aspect to that as well. We also know from studies that a happy worker is a more loyal worker, is a more productive worker, right? So if you go into a company, you know this these, this company allowed you for the first time to not be looked at like a felon, to not have to gamble with your life and your family's life and, you know, be a good, productive member of society. And they helped you become a homeowner when other opportunities arise. There's an aspect of that that's in you that you're not going to jump ship, you know, and I see a lot of companies. I, I talk to companies when they reach out to me, it's either, hey, we've got this population we can't reach at all or we can reach them, but they won't stay here. Right. Once we get them in, these are things and these are some of the the tools that you can have to build that loyalty to your company and build that up to keep people here, no matter if they find somewhere that that will pay them a little bit more, they won't consider that as much. Well, and I know that a lot of times when you're looking at that person that's been there for, you know, 30, 40 years, then they're bringing in all these young kids and they start to feel irrelevant, where if you start to put together these relationships, and sometimes you have to force them at the beginning to happen, yes. but then you, you put together people who wouldn't necessarily gravitate towards each other and you know, and then those relationships and we come to a different level of understanding yes. because now people have a, a different level where they can understand where people are coming from uh, and they're a little bit better when it comes to just developing those types of relationships. 100%. And I'll even take it a step further. It gives you data that you can then use and begin to build an actual manual out and you can build out steps to be able to continue to foster those relationships going forward, right? So once you either by forcing them or naturally let them happen, you can start to build out a program that says, and a culture that says, this is how we work. We work with you know, these two gaps working together and this is this this is the pathway that they go through to achieve ultimate cooperation and ultimate collaboration. And then you can start measuring these things. And then when you bring in new people or you have older people, you can say, hey, are they hitting these standards? Are they moving through this process? Oh no, so let's let's put them through it, right? Or are we underperforming? 
you know, the culture isn't isn't what we need it to be. Here's a work through. Here's a process that we developed from doing it. Let's reenact that. I mean, reengage it and put everybody through it again. You know, and it just right. makes the company better. Well, and the other thing, you know, manufacturers got this reputation and not only among the underserved communities, but all, you know, every parent on the planet that has this view of manufacturing of being dark, dirty and dangerous, you know, how do we start, how does manufacturing start to rebrand so that we change the overall perception across the board? So great question. And and that's one of the things that I love about the TV show Project MFG, Clash of the Trades. We are we've we've got to for the for the students and the youth and the people that are looking to get into the industry. Our industry has to be more conscious and we have to be more and we have to have more intent to put more content out visual of what we're doing right now, especially with automation, with AI and VR, with industry 4.0, fifth access, all of the things that the youth are built for today. We've got to get it in front of their faces. We've got to get into these algorithms. We have to go where the youth are, where the future of workforce is, and put that content out there in a good way. So we see, you know, there are manufacturers that understand that, but they're still putting out content that the older generation or that they would like. We've got to understand that we're not making content for the people that are already in it and the people that already know and the people that are here. We've got to put out content for them that they're digesting and get it out there in an organic, good looking way. At the same time, we do need to work more with the schools, with the guidance counselors, with the tech schools, because they're the people that are going to be pitching this industry to these kids every day. With Project MFG, we're on TV. We've got the show to a point where we've gamified it. And we've got the youth excited about getting into the field. And, you know, we're really revolutionary so they can see that and digest that content and really believe that manufacturing is real. We give away a $100,000 grand prize at the end of it. So there's that incentivization. And then with, you know, the American Manufacturing Renaissance Tour, we're getting in front of the community and the parents and showcasing these new jobs and letting them know that, you know, with the new technology, it isn't the 3Ds anymore. It's not what your parents probably did because that's a little bit of that's a little bit of our our fault as well. The people that are in manufacturing. So maybe not your eyes generation, but the generation before us, like, you know, grandpa, great grandpa, they did manufacturing and they were in the dark, dirty, dangerous. And they worked hard at manufacturing so that the parents now didn't have to do manufacturing. And they probably told them every day when they came home from work, I'm working hard and I'm doing dirty, dangerous, dark, so you could go to college and you don't have to, right? And that's the generation of parents that are right now, all they're doing is regurgitating, you know, some of that trauma that they might've seen and what they were told. And that's why they went to a four-year college and university and the trade schools kind of fell off and these programs kind of fell off, right? So we've got to reverse what we did in the industry and enjoy the fruits of our labors because, 
all of these robots, all these better machines, all these faster machines, we built them. You know what I'm saying? So right. we built them so we didn't have to be dirty, dark, dangerous anymore. We exactly. built them and, and innovated these things so we didn't have to be hunched over and have, you know, our ears checked every five you know, years and all of those things. So let's enjoy the fruits of our labors. And it's on us to re-talk about that message and really, you know, integrate, get into Industry 4.0 and show those shops off. Show them off, be proud of them and understand that it's not your ego or your pride is we need it for, for we need the people to see it. Exactly. Well, wow, I, I, we could talk about this all afternoon because I love your passion and energy and, you know, just the reminders that there's lots of resources out there. It's making the commitment to have that conversation. And it sounds like you have lots of resources too, between your TV show and the new American manufacturing renaissance. So if people did want to get a hold of you and continue the conversation, what's the best way for them to do that? The best way to do that is uh, via my email. It's A-C-R-O-W-E at the-mfg.com. That's T-H-E-M-F-G.com, which is also my website. You can also fill out a form there, the-mfg.com. You could also reach out to me on LinkedIn. Andrew Crow, C-R-O-W-E is my name. And if you're really ready to book something and speak to me right away, <laughs> my Calendly is calendly.com slash the MFG. Awesome. Well, Andrew, it has been an absolute pleasure. I've so enjoyed our conversation and I'm really excited to share it with my listeners. Thank Likewise. you for being Thank with me. Thank you so much for the platform. <laughs> you are very welcome. Well, I'm Lisa Ryan and this is the Manufacturers Network. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Hey, do me a favor. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. Also, feel free to share the podcast with your friends and colleagues so we can grow the network and connect more fantastic folks just like you. You can either go to the website at manufacturers-network.com Dot com, or share the podcast on your LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or wherever you and your industry friends hang out. The bigger and faster we grow this network, the stronger and deeper community we will have. I appreciate you. Thank you.